belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. Sorry about no podcast last week. We had a discussion style service that wasn't great for a podcast, so thanks for bearing with us. This week, the message is called Sabbath as Freedom. The speaker is Jennifer Acuff, and the location is Central United Methodist Church, Fayetteville, Arkansas. So what do the Truman Show, Barbie, and WandaVision have in common? This is not a setup for a joke, just an observation, although it could be. Um, We seem to be really drawn to movies where we see a character come to some sort of realization during the plot um, about their environment or their place in their community, and there's something very relatable about watching a protagonist learn that they are a cog in a system, um, and that things are not as they seem, rather they're just kind of a prisoner in their own world. Um, And in all of these particular examples, um, if you haven't seen any of those that I listed, you should, uh, they're very good. Um, In these particular examples, the main character notices that something is not right, and then starts to slowly peel back the layers to reveal something much bigger. And uh, once they finally get to the bottom of it, they're usually successful and they're freed uh, from that oppression in their society and their community, um, and they're free to, to choose their own destiny. So my journey over the last couple of weeks, learning about Sabbath and my understanding what I knew before and where I'm coming um, into, I think, has been a little bit similar, um, but not deserving of like an Oscar or an Emmy or anything, <laughs> a little bit more flailing. Um, and so this week, we're really looking at what it means to make Sabbath a demonstration of freedom. So the word freedom feels very directional to me, right? Um, it conveys like some sort of comparison. It's not a standalone word. Um, so we think of things like oppression and uninhibited, right? There's kind of like two sides to it, um, burdened versus weightless, enslaved, uncontrolled. And that's kind of how freedom feels, right? It's like one part of an idea. Um, so it's only natural that we talk about Sabbath as freedom in those directional terms, because I'm me. I'm using prepositions to guide us today. <laughs> so, oh my God, that's so loud. All right. Uh, so, uh, we're going to use some prepositions starting with um, freedom from to understand what we're coming out of. And so, we're going to pull from some of the ideas that we talked about um, during the Sabbath as resistance, right? Because those things were somewhat identified there. We're going to pull them in here as well. So I know it feels a little bit silly to talk about Sabbath in the context of freedom, because growing up at least, it's like Sabbath was this mandated requirement. It was withholding. It was restrictive, right? And um, and honestly, at least in my church community growing up, we didn't need to worry about that, right? Because Jesus came, freed us. It's not something we need to do anymore. Um, but the thing is, um, you know, Jesus did come to fulfill the law. But um, we did see him in a lot of stories, obviously somewhat participating in Sabbath, because all the stories we have are of him breaking it, right? Uh, At least breaking it according to what the the religious leaders said. Okay, so we're going to kind of be a little bit imaginative um, and think about what it would mean for us to be recognizing um, Sabbath as freedom for our lives. So if we turn uh, the concept of Sabbath being restrictive and withholding, turn it on the head a little bit, and look at what in our life is truly oppressive, um, enslaving and controlling, um, that's, that's kind of where we're starting today. So I want to be super clear that there are people in our history who have been literally um, and physically oppressed and enslaved. 
we're not using those exact terms to convey those meaning, right? Um, but the Bible uses so much imagery around freedom and being enslaved and being captive to society that we are recognizing that there are some forms of oppression that we're experiencing and that people around us are experiencing. Um, so I'm not equating those things, right? Um, but uh, I think there's some some very strong truths, and that's why Paul and many of the apostles talked about it in those terms. Okay, so it's typical for people who value independence, um, especially those who would consider, we would consider to have some sort of privilege, to believe they're free, completely in control of their circumstances, of their life, of their actions. Um, we see that a lot in our country, obviously, uh, but also many others, many other environments. So like the characters in the movies that I referenced, um, what if the whole system actually depends on controlling us? The whole system, this whole facade of freedom is actually based on us being controlled um, and then gaslighting us into making us think that we're making our own choices, right? Um, so that's our first step in peeling back these layers. So I actually wanna ask Shannon to come up and share um, what was a very formative experience for her a couple of years ago. She shared this story with me um, and I found it quite, quite funny and relatable. Um, but it, it does a really good job explaining how the harsh conditions um, that we kind of exist in can be reframed as, as very holy and well-intentioned. So I'm gonna give it to her. You can stay right, you come, come with me, perfect. So I think it's safe to presume that most of us here today, listening online, listening onto the podcast, has have held some form of job outside of, outside of a formal ministry position in their life. Whether that was a babysitting, your teaching, scooping ice cream, or convincing the world's largest re uh, retailer to pretty please buy my widget, Thank you very much, like I do. <laughs> and in these roles, many of you, and myself included, might have found yourself disheartened because your job didn't directly impact the kingdom because it wasn't a 501c3 ministry. Or in other words, it wasn't work honoring of God. Thankfully, there are organizations, both locally and nationally, uh, that have created ministries uh, around supporting those working outside the church a church setting and finding value in work. About six years ago, I attended a conference hosted by one of these organizations. It was a big production. Donnie Smith, former CEO of Tyson, uh, was the main speaker. He kicked us off for the day. And his topic, Genesis 1. For anyone who has ever listened to Donnie Smith, he is an amazing speaker. He's really engaging, thought-provoking. And he made a very compelling argument that day. And that argument was this, your non-ministry work, non work matters because our God works. We saw him work for six days, literally. Now, if I hadn't been deep into my deconstruction phase, I probably would have just walked away um, from that session feeling lifted because I can find value in my work. God worked, right? And, and it is true, right? There's totally value in our work. But because I was practically throwing out the proverbial baby with the bathwater at the time, I was stunned. In fact, I had just been studying Genesis 1 and 2, um, and those that I was studying uh, believed quite the opposite of what Donnie was saying that day. And this is according, again, to biblical scholars, midrash, rabbis. Again, people, not me. And the point of Genesis 1 and 2 is about rest. So I want to read those real quick. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day all the work that he had been doing. 
God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he ceased all the work that he had been doing in creation. God resting is quite literally about freedom. Freedom from work, from productivity, from empire, and freedom to rest in him. So I really think we've probably all had experiences somewhat like this, um, where job is heralded as a higher cause, right? Um, and it doesn't matter what job you have. It might be, you might be self-employed, might be staying in your home, it might be working for a big company, might be a teacher, right? Um, whatever it is, uh, whatever job you have, that's what you're spending your time on. If you were to calculate out your minutes per day and what you're putting your time into, that's your job, right? Um, and uh, no, matter, no matter what uh, job you have, someone's told you that it's good for your community, it's a servant-oriented job maybe, um, it's, you know, you're, you're doing something good for other people, you're making, making a life better for somebody else. I mean, to be honest, Marlboro, right, it's now owned by Philip Morris or whatever, they have a mission statement, okay? They have a mission statement. So, so any, any company, any group, whatever, can convince you that you're doing the right thing, okay? Um, and that's, that's not bad, right? So corporate mission statements and vision statements and whatever, it's not bad, okay, not inherently. Um, but sometimes it can be a manipulation tactic, right? If you think back to the story of the Israelites, when Moses was taking way too long to come back down from the mountain, what'd they do? They made a calf, right? And they weren't making a false god. They were making a false image of a true god. Okay? And, and we get caught up in idolatry sometimes. And we think this thing, this thing that's not inherently bad, uh, is what we're putting our energy into. It's what we're putting our time and our money into. It's not inherently bad. It's what we do with it. Okay? So let me throw some statements at you um, and see if any of these phrases sound familiar. So if you've heard these, or you've used them, maybe? I've used them. Uh, just throw up your hand. All right. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Anyone? Okay, good. Do everything without grumbling or complaining with a good attitude. Oh, yeah. I like that one. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will succeed. Yeah, okay. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. Yes. Uh, God will never give you more than you can handle. I literally just got chills the way that's been weaponized to me. Okay. Those who do not work will not eat. Okay, so those all sound familiar, right? That's because they're scriptures. They are verses in the Bible. Those might be some interpretations of them, but they are all connected to a very specific verse, every single one of them, all right? Um, what? It's a loose, it's a loose, loose interpretation, but he was citing, he was citing working so that you may, may eat. Yes, but you're right, yeah. Yeah, it was more popularly raised by Franklin. All right, so these are familiar in some capacity, right? Um, they've been used out of context to weaponize uh, and get you to work more, right? Get you to do more. Um, maybe it's more work, better work, uncompensated work, less complaining, right? And it doesn't mean the work is bad. It doesn't mean that can't be an encouraging statement. But how many of you have had it weaponized against you? Maybe personally. I use them on myself all the time. Okay? Um, so better work, more work. If you're a woman, more smile. Right? That's, you get that a lot. Um, so I was raised in a family to do my best. 
Anyone else? Is that like a mantra? Do your best. Right, okay. That's, that's not a problem. It's not a bad thing, not at all. Okay, but I think it can be a double-edged sword um, to, to focus on doing your best all the time, and it's because of how we define best, right? So um, I really want to take a few minutes, if you guys could just organize into little groups and talk about what best means for you, and are there some pros and cons to that? We did some kind of discussion last week, and I think it was really nice to hear from people about you know, their, their interpretation of, of the message. So um, pros and cons, what best means to you? Just like two minutes. Find, find anybody. Okay, so I'm just going to bring us back. This feels very lively. I hate to interrupt. All right. So I would love to hear, and it doesn't have to be from each kind of cluster, but anyone hear something from someone in their group that was like, oh yeah, I identify with that, or that makes a lot of sense? About what best looks like, or what it means, and maybe a pro or a con. Give me your all every single time. Yep. Effort. That's not a bad thing, right? Okay, what else? Ah. Ah, yeah. Doing the hard things and doing them over the expected amount. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? I heard a couple of like little, I could hear some keywords, things like 110%, which, which literally isn't possible, right? <laughs> like, I'm just tired thinking about like all the conversations that I, I imagine were happening, right? Like it's, it's all wrapped up in, like and like, do until you die, right? Um, and and I, I think I'm not the only one who feels this way, right? I think that in our our environments, we're very very caught up in those ideas, right? So very much like you know, do the hard work, um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, earn your independence, liberty, success, like all of that, right? But I think the problem is that is really just another way of talking about the prosperity gospel. Right? So the problem is, is not that doing our best and celebrating our successes is bad. It's, it's not inherently wrong, but it convinces us that, that we earned something and that if we stop, then we're no longer earning something. Right? Um, and so it becomes like a drug. Right? We like get addicted to the idea that we need to earn and keep going and keep getting better. Right? And if we stop, if we quit earning in the way that someone has maybe affirmed us to earn before, um, we start feeling guilty and lazy, inept, unsuccessful, and worse, we look at other people and then think that if they're not trying their best, then they are those things, right? So I've heard about people talk about their experiences with addiction, and one of the ways that it's described is being a slave to something. You're stuck. You're addicted to it, right? Um, so is it possible that we are slaves to earning? Slaves to sustenance, self-sustenance, 
right, that we can do it by ourselves. And so I think this has probably always been the case. I don't think it's just unique to us, and that's why um, our scripture today comes from Galatians 5. It's the letter to the Galatians, um, or the church in Galatia, that was largely um, about what life should look like when you've accepted Jesus as Savior. So the key themes of that book was being transformed, having unity in Christ, and being free, um, and freedom in Christ, right? Um, but specifically also not losing sight of what's important, okay? So Paul wrote in verse 1, uh, Galatians 5, Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. And then go down to verse 13. It's absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence, love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all you will be annihilating each other, and where will your precious freedom be then? My counsel is this, live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are contrary to each other, so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? And that's obviously the message translation. It's not... King James or anything. Um, so Paul writes this and, and, and talks about freedom being in contrast um, to greed and idolatry and selfishness, right? Which is not, I think, typically the, the word that we think of when we think of the opposite of freedom. It's not greed, right? I should have led with that. I should have asked what you guys think the opposite of freedom is, but that would have been like a gotcha. Um, so, so those actions and traits are sinful in part of the consequences it creates for our lives, for our energy, for our society, and our community. Um, and so Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann, in his book about Sabbathist resistance states, an, ac a, an acquisitive way of life leaves one in anxiety about not yet or ever having enough and always needing more. The alternative is grounded in confidence that God provides what is needed as energy is redeployed to strive for his kingdom. So I think practicing Sabbath is a direct contradiction to earning and self-sustenance. But it can feel so uncomfortable to just stop, right? Like, what does that even mean? How do you just stop? Okay. So God actually does want us to stop, though. He made that pretty clear um, in the Genesis story. And I think that it's pretty prevalent throughout the, the gospel as well. But what for, right? Because we always have to have something kind of like, okay, well, we're stopping. We're freedom from all this stuff. What for? Okay, so that's our next proposition. Uh, so uh, let's think back to God's first interaction with the Israelites as a community. So it's written in Exodus that God heard the cries, right? Israelites were being oppressed. They were slaves, and they were crying out to God. God heard them, and God wanted to take them out of Egypt, sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, let, let the people go, out of Egypt into the desert to do what? Worship, right? So the problem was that they were being oppressed. They were being worked tooth and nail, day and night, 365. They had no rest. And God said, you have to physically be removed from this to worship me. There's none of this like, you can do it on the side, 
do it on your break. It was like, you have to leave this because you are 100% fixated by force on this thing, right? God had to physically remove them, right? And so I think that's part of what Sabbath does, right? It makes room for worship, okay? So restricting that time um, allows you time for worship. So my next question for your small group discussion is this. What does worship look like for you? could be visible, invisible, subtle, obvious, doesn't matter. But what does worship or what has worship looked like for you in the past? I heard a, I heard a brief pause, so I'm going to take advantage of it. Okay, so I would love to hear if anyone in your group said something and you went, oh yeah, me too. So some similar, similar expressions of worship. Obvious, not obvious. Visible, invisible. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Spending time in God's creation and giving thanks for that. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. I think that's I think that's really important. So Janie was saying that um, that uh, worship in the past looked very specific, and now, uh, kind of coming out of some of those forms of worship, the word is heavy. The necessity of it is kind of vague, but you can really quickly identify what worship isn't. Yeah. And and it was your comment last week, Janie, actually, that sparked me to ask this question because you were talking about how you've kind of come into this time and place in life where you're recognizing the sacredness in everything and seeing seeing everything that God has created as sacred. And um, I think that's... I. I personally think that that's a way to worship, right? So most of, when I think about it, I think, you know, it kind of comes down to gratitude for me, like Sean mentioned, giving giving thanks for creation, right? So showing gratitude. Um, but it's really anything also that I think, like, honors the Trinity of some of some sort, right? And what always comes to mind when I think of that is, is the recurring theme that Jesus gave of doing unto others, right? And doing for the least of these, right? And that is a beautiful form of worship, is to care for the other person who has needs. I mean, that was his whole ministry, right? Um, and uh, and I would think that if we're meant to be worshiping God in the same way Jesus tried to uh, provide an example for, I would think caring for others is a big part of it. And... Um, so uh, Abraham Heschel, in his book, Sabbath, stated, kind of ca- captured this as kind of by, by um, serving others, by fixating on the community as the uh, contradiction to 
the oppression that prevents us from expressing Sabbath, right? So to set apart one day a week for freedom, a day on which we would not use the instruments when have, which have been so easily turned into weapons of destruction, a day for being with ourselves, a day of independence from external obligations, a day on which we stop worshiping the idols of technical civilization, a day of armistice in the economic struggle with our fellow men, is there any institution that holds out a great hope for man's progress more than Sabbath, right? So it's kind of pushing us out of that. Um, when we, I think when we stop and take time to worship, it pulls us out of the Sabbath um, or of, of the Egyptian empire and whatever society that we're in now because it kind of reframes what our focus is on. It reframes who's in charge and who we owe thanks to, right? Reframes who has created this world for us. It's not us doing it ourselves. So that brings us to our last preposition, okay? So Sabbath gives us the freedom to what, okay? It's to something, right? So the obvious thing is rest, right? The obvious thing for Sabbath is rest. Um, rest from the busy, chaotic, uh, conflict-filled lives that we have, correct? Um, but... I think it can, and in some cases, is more than that. So in Luke 12, Jesus talks about a lifestyle that's specifically contrary to earning, contrary to productivity, contrary to self-sustenance. Um, and the resulting lifestyle ends up pointing to a way of life that, surprise, surprise, points us toward loving God and loving others, which is also probably one of the biggest recurring themes, right? So Jesus describes in... Um, in one of the parables, the story of the greedy farmer who focuses on storing his excess profits for the purpose of relaxing and then putting up their feet later in life. And he has all this success and does a really good job building barns and puts it away. Um, but then uh, the story says that, that it was foolish because God shows up and, and points out um, that he's going to die tonight. So what was the point of all that? Just to save for something you'll never see. Okay, so that was the story. But the rest of the anecdote um, that Jesus gave to the disciples goes like this, and this is the message translation. Don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or if the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There is far more to your inner life than the food that you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the ravens, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, carefree in the care of God, and you count far more. Has anyone, by fussing before the mirror, ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? If fussing can't even do that, why fuss at all? Walk into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They don't fuss with their appearance. They, but have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The ten best-dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the wildflowers, most of them never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you? Take pride in you? Do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is get you to relax, not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both, God and how he works. Steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You're my dearest friends. The Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself. Be generous, give to the poor, Get yourselves a bank that can't go bankrupt. A bank in heaven far from bank robbers, safe from embezzlers. A bank you can bank on. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. So I'm not saying that you should feel badly for having an IRA, 
a retirement account. Okay, I, that's not my place. I have one, um, right? I, I actually really don't know how that practically exists in those things. That's something to tease out some other time. Um, what I am saying is that we can become fixated on earning and saving and independence and doing for ourselves, right? And become completely self-absorbed and lose sight of God's, God's provisions and the people that God has put in front of us. So last week we had the group discussion about, about Sabbath and um, I, was, I was in a group with Stacy and Olivier and uh, Olivier mentioned um, that in her Sabbath experience, what she does is she looks at the people who live around her. So she spends time with the people that she lives around and it easily led into you know, finding opportunities to help each other. Right? And um, she mentioned that um, helping each other is uh, investing in your heavenly bank, right? And that really led into this very simply. Um, I think that's one of the things that practicing Sabbath makes room for. Because, um, I mean, we help each other, we help other people all the time, right? I've got it in my calendar to, like, help with this thing and do this and show up here. and what. I mean, we do that. I know we do that. Um, what I don't have is a day blocked out to just see, like, what God needs me to do and just go around and see. I don't have that in my calendar, admittedly, okay? Um, so I have my own planned uh, helping time, right? So um, I think that's also an example we see from Jesus as well, as the whole ministry was helping others, right? So whenever the, the religious leaders called him out for breaking Sabbath, what was he doing every time? Healing people, clothing people, helping people. Right? And so I don't think it's wrong to think that Sabbath needs to be sat in your living room on a chair doing nothing, because that is definitely not what we saw Jesus do. That ain't it. Okay. Um, so I think the worship team can go ahead and come on up if you guys want to. So when we rest, when we practice Sabbath, and we give ourselves a break from the chaos, um, we stop looking down at what we're doing and trying to achieve, and I think we start looking out looking at others, looking up, right? And we're free from these things, and it places in, places us in a very countercultural rhythm to be free for worship and resting in God's actual provisions, not what we've done for ourselves. A time when we can see our collective identity as well. When we recognize that we have not earned this, we don't expect others to be earning what they have either. And we start with a blank slate just as children of God. There are a lot of disciplines that we practice like this, that we practice regularly, like communion or the Eucharist, right? We come together and we eat and we drink and remember Jesus' Sabbath. We tithe, we give generously because uh, we all have something to give and none of us are without a need. So we do disciplines, right? We do practice them. And so the discipline of practicing Sabbath can become legalistic, absolutely. Just like what Janie mentioned with worship. It can be very good. It can be very, very harmful, okay? But not when we focus on Sabbath as what it frees us from, what it frees us for, and what it frees us to. And in its best form, I think what that looks like is unity in Christ. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. If you would like to give, you can go to gracechurchnwa.org forward slash give. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.